Hi, I'm Kelly Kivland, and this is the Cost Catch-Up, a series of conversations between friends about creativity, life, and style. I'm based in New York City. I'm a curator at DIA Art Foundation, where I've worked since 2011. DIA, just for those that don't know, um, takes its name from the Greek word meaning through, uh, and it was established in 1974 with the mission to serve as a conduit for artists to realize ambitious new projects that were very much unmediated by overt interpretation and uh, very different from the limitations at the time of more traditional museums and galleries. In addition to Dia Beacon and Dia Chelsea, Dia maintains and operates a constellation of commissions, long-term installations, and site-specific projects, notably focused on land art nationally and internationally. I've known Carl, Carl Craig, who's joining me today since 2015. A longtime admirer, uh, we first met in Brooklyn to discuss his possible interest in working with Dia on our engagement, or rather our re-engagement with sound-based practices. And over the past five years, we've worked together to realize his installation at Dia Beacon currently, titled Party Slash After Party, the large-scale installation which opened on March 6th, one week before we closed the museum due to the pandemic. It has since thankfully reopened and will be on view now until July 2021. And today we're recording over the internet to catch up and to share with you some of our stories from our life and work. Carl, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Hey, Kelly. Thanks for uh, such a great intro. Glad to know you. My name is Carl Craig. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and uh, I've been making music for a long time. And uh, my, my job on a daily is to rock the party all over the world, except now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Where are you right now, Carl? You want to share with us where you are? I'm in my studio uh, in Detroit, Michigan. Um, this is an electronic music studio, computer-based, um, not so much uh, acoustic instrumentation that's recorded here. It's mainly electronic, uh, electronic generated sounds and synthesizers and drum machines and et cetera, et cetera. That's actually a good place for us to begin because I've been really curious over the last uh, several six, seven months since you haven't been touring and you've been having lots of time in the studio. Um, what has your practice been like? Have you been, have you been recording? Have you been working with others? How have you been, um, yeah, keeping your practice going during this time? Well, it's given me a lot of time to, of course, think, which I already think too much. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes overthinking uh, gets in the way of, of the process. But mm. um, because because of, of being on the road constantly, so um, uh, I'd leave on a Thursday, play gigs Friday, Saturday, come back Sunday. Sometimes I'd leave on Wednesday, play gigs Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, come back on Monday. And that could be anywhere in the world. So um, by, by having very little time in the studio, I've amassed um, a lot of uh, gear as well as um, uh, apps and plugins and things like that. So um, when my schedule was at full tilt, I had no time 
to really learn any of the stuff that I, that I'd amassed. So uh, now um, it gives me a chance to practice on my, my sound engineering chops and my uh, computer programming chops and, and, uh, and all that. So I've learned a lot more about uh, my studio that I really needed to know about it, uh, especially as being, you know, a self-producer, self-engineer. Um, and and uh, it's, it's been good for me to um, work as far as practices and practicing and learning and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. So now I, I'm looking forward to jumping back into some books and uh start start really reading again because um because mm. that that's that's gotten fell by the wayside as well mm-hmm. um before i ask you what you're going to read next or first rather i wanted to also see you know it's i mean a lot of people do know this about your practice but i think for those that are listening of course they're thinking about your sound installation dia your work as a dj but your an incredibly acclaimed and long-term producer running planet E for what, since 1991, is that correct? 92. That's correct. 91. And yeah, 91. Um, So many people that you have been a mentor to, and you've really sort of led the way for, Um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the work you did recently to give renewed focus to Marcus Belgrave and Mm -hmm. others like him that are very true to Detroit and, and also your work there and your, your life there, but also your practice as a producer. Do you mind just sharing a little bit more with us on that? Uh, Marcus Belgrave is uh, a inspiration to uh, Detroit musicians because Marcus is, has never shied away from uh, mentoring uh, younger musicians um he um famously mentored amp fiddler who who uh uh was part of the p-funk all-stars he toured with with uh, george clinton for years i think he had started when he was about 16 or 17 years old when when he uh um when he started playing with george clinton but through that amp fiddler was the guy who mentored jay dilla uh, who is one of the the uh, most revered uh, hip hop producers um, in history, uh, and and Dilla's uh, long after his death, uh, his his style has resonated throughout um, beat making and and uh, rap production. Um, Marcus checked out and went to the next plane some years back. And, uh, you know, he, he left some wonderful music and one of the pieces is, a uh, album called Gemini, uh, which came out on Detroit's tribe label, uh, along with, with, uh, Wendell Harrison and Phil Randlin, um, and Doug Hammond and, uh, Harold McKinney, uh, who all had roots in, in Detroit and, um, Gemini was was a piece that, um, or is a piece that that has has had a lot of legs for uh, almost fifty years, and um, has been a, a real inspiration musically for for not only trumpet players but for jazz musicians, and then on to uh, later um, 
uh, people like Giles Peterson, uh, who, who, you know, really reveres the music that, that Marcus Belgrave has done. And you can hear it, uh, hear echoes of it in the music that he signs for his own labels like Talking Loud and Brownswood. Um, so uh, with Marcus, I felt that it was important to um, present the music in a much higher quality than, than what had been possible or had been done in the past. And uh, we teamed up with, with uh, Third Man Records uh, to remaster um, the original tapes as well as to, to repress on um, uh, an undyed 180-gram vinyl uh, which which sounds superb, and I I don't know if he's heard the music sound so good on vinyl, and I'm I'm uh, sad that he's not able to to be here to experience it, but uh, definitely um, you know because of my relationship with him, I really want to preserve his legacy. Um, in the best way that I can. And, and that's how I know how to is by, you know, pressing high quality vinyl. You know, just as you were talking, it made me think about, I mean, you've been so dedicated to Detroit for all of these years, your entire life. Um, and, you know, this, this is a, uh, a podcast that is touching on style and thinking about legacy how do you think the de the Detroit style has has evolved, or what what do you think it is today, mm. musically, or just in general? What what is the Detroit style? Oh, that's I know that's, that's <laughs> a difficult one. That's a difficult one. I mean, maybe I could, maybe just even a, a thread or two. I I think I could talk about it from the level of of my peers mm. with electronic music. Um, you know, uh, guys like myself and Stacy Pullen and Derek May are really locked into um, the idea of being fashion forward. I mean, Stacy's one of the most snazziest dressers, <laughs> as, <laughs> as the old folks would say. But uh, Stacy is has got a real style um, that is his. is very futuristic, and. Um, uh, it's it's quite quite amazing, um, you know. Detroit is a workman's town. It's, it comes from you know factories, uh, Ford, General Motors, Chrysler, mm -hmm. uh, Packard, et cetera, et cetera, from from uh, the past. And uh, I think the that the style of Detroit is has always been locked into a um, uh, a Sunday best uh, dress that that workers and employees would would do in order to go clubbing or go out to go to church the next day or whatever. So Detroit style, um, when it's Sunday best, is probably closest to zoot suits. You know, like ten button blazers with big checker <laughs> things. And as uh, Biggie said, um, Fuchsia Gators, my Detroit players, and that's. That's like straight Detroit, you know, fuchsia gator, fuchsia, fuchsia alligator shoes is like straight up Detroit player style. That's perfect. Um, I was just going to actually 
sort of situate people as to how our conversations have evolved over the last five years. Um, we met early in 2015 in January, I think. January or February is cold winter Brooklyn. We had just first met to sort of entertain the idea of possibly engaging with Dia. You then visited a couple of our sites, Dia Beacon upstate in Beacon, New York, and then of course in Chelsea on 22nd Street. And I think very much our collaboration evolved with a great deal of trust, considering we had to have years of conversation, really think through and talk through exactly what would be right for you, um, what you wanted to explore at, at DIA and with us. Um, and that has now been realized into this incredible installation in this 35,000 square foot space at DIA Beacon. And I wanted to ask if you can maybe share with those listening um, how this might differ, how working spatially might differ from sort of intimacy and immediacy of the club environment. Um, and is it more aligned with your work as a producer or I guess, yeah, how is it different from your work as a DJ having to sort of approach your practice in a spatial way? We're doing a project with Dia with, with our, with our uh, space that that's used. Um, of course it was a bit daunting. Um, at first because it's so so big um yes i'm used to to djing in in places that are like that um you know whether it's a uh, inside of a warehouse or or um outside uh, in a football field or in a even in a as you said a very intimate small club you know so uh with us going between beacon and and um, looking at the space in Manhattan, um, Beacon definitely felt more interesting to me in a very intimate way because I've, maybe because I have an intimate relationship with with spaces that are that are like that. From my experiences going to parties at at the Packard Plant here in Detroit or, you know, uh, warehouse parties in London that, that were legal and illegal or, <laughs> you know, warehouse parties anywhere. So, um, but with that, with, with the amount of time that we, we had, um, to, uh, know each other, to know the spaces, um, to really, um, lock into that space, <clears throat> Uh, with our tests, with sound, with, uh, you know, um, actual recorded music and tones and just drum sounds or, or any of that stuff that um, it just felt right for my idea to, uh, to, to grow, to, uh, flourish and for you to to help shape it with me that it it um uh it really made sense and also your team is is so knowledgeable of the building itself that you know that was the icing on the on the cake you know when we were discussing uh the entryways uh when um we're discussing when we we uh uh ordered the speakers 
and then the cabinetry made for the speakers in order for it to blend in with with the uh, with the darkness of the room mm-hmm. so that it didn't look like it was you know because the the concept of the piece isn't about the speakers if we were making a piece about speakers then it would be front and center but um you know your team knows how to not only mount what was needed for for the um for the piece but also to design something that fit within my vision of of what it should should be you know cuz like when i play at these parties there's like big speakers everywhere and the speakers become part of the venue you know it's like okay what kind of sound system does this guy have you know what kind of sound system are they using you see these subs you see horns you see you know all the components that that make it and that's like what people expect as far as clubs are concerned but with this piece with the party after party it had a lot less to do with the components that uh, project the sound it had more to do with how the sound reacted with the room and then also uh, how my vision um, became part of the room. But I think with it, with the darkness, it plays with people's imaginations as well, you know? And then when there's some light, then it really makes an impact, like the, the, the center impact of the room. It makes such a, a huge impact on people that finally they're able to experience, you know, something out of the darkness. It's like a beacon, a beacon and beacon, <laughs> <laughs> a beacon at beacon. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you know, building the speakers to uh, the speaker enclosures, and then something that is really hidden, which which is the window shutters. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. Most people won't expect that because they're walking into this dark room, and then those shutters open, and you get the glorious mm-hmm. light that comes in from outdoors, and and. Uh, it, it's so effective. And I think without your team knowing about uh, knowing the room intimately and technically uh, it wouldn't have been able to, to, to come together if, if, if the team wasn't uh, as awesome as they are. I think they'll really appreciate hearing that. I, I think it's true too, in that we had a lot of time for you to come and visit and be in this space. Um, and, you know, even as you were just talking, this year obviously has changed everything for all of us, and especially those like yourself that, you know, you've been touring the club environment and parties in general, uh, whether indoor or outdoor, have been part of your life for decades. And mm. this is a very contemplative space that you've built um, at, on not just techno, but your own personal life. And it's a reclamation in many ways um, about, you know, um, darkness and, and the club environment as well as um, your own identity, I think, too. But I wanted to really focus on this last year and how this work is reading differently right now for those that are visiting when they can't be in the club and they can't 
party together. They can't be dancing together. Um, how has this year changed for you? And, and how do you think, can you, how do you imagine people are experiencing this differently than they would have, say, pre-COVID? Uh, from responses that, that I've seen, um, some people are using this as a, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost like walking into a, a cathedral. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a church service going on, but you walk in and it's just mm-hmm. like, you can, it's, it's amazing. You know, you can imagine what, what happens during the church service. You can look at the, the, um, uh, the pipe organ, or you can look at, at mm-hmm. the stained glass. You could, so people are kind of using this like a temple um, and a temple that harks back to a time that is not so long ago, but it feels like it's so, it feels like we haven't gone to clubs in a decade, mm-hmm. you know, where it's only been, eight months or something, you know? Um, I think that uh, if if the pandemic didn't happen, that there would be um, either people who don't go to clubs anymore or people who have never gone to clubs that would still appreciate it um, quite well. You know, because like my parents who are who are elderly, you know, they've never been in a situation like that. That's not their concept of clubbing, mm-hmm. but they can appreciate what it is, you know. So, okay, people who, who go to clubs every weekend, they'll have a different opinion of the piece mm-hmm. because then after they leave, so they're in Beacon, say, on on a Thursday seeing a piece and then go to a club on Friday, then they have that, that way of, of, of um, comparing the two. Mm-hmm. But since there's, you know, in most cases, no clubs that are opening at least indoor <clears throat> in the same way, then it's, it gives the people who can't go anymore that bit of, 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 of uh, love, that experience that they miss, you know, they miss from watching TV and always hearing about bad news, you know, always t- uh, hearing that we have to wear masks all the time, you know, it, it kind of brings them back to the point of, mm-hmm. oh, this is what it was like before we had to, you know, lock down, before we had to, you know, so, I mean, I think a lot of people are just, just chomping at the bit. They just want to, they just want to do it. And this gives them the opportunity to have that feeling again that that um that again feels like such a distant memory, yeah, it definitely does you know i I constantly think back at the the cover of your now legendary um l p more songs about food and revolutionary art, and the quote that is on the cover um i'm going to paraphrase it here: Revolutionary art is not determined by its avant garde content nor its formal or technical trickery, its interpretation of reality, but rather by how, it, how much it revolutionizes our thinking and imagination, um, and also our bias and prejudice and inspiring us to change ourselves in the world. 
that's a paraphrase version of that quote, but it's, it's incredible how much it meant to me before the, the installation, but pre COVID pre um, the anti-racist movement of BLM right now. And now it's just a much it's compounded in its um, provocations and its relevance. How, what does that quote mean to you then in 1997? And I can, I can estimate or guesstimate rather what it means to you now, but I want to hear what it means to you today. Um, I can't really say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just curious as to, do you remember why you chose to, um, what, what about that quote spoke to you then? Well, that, that was a quote from um, my my son's grandfather, mm-hmm. um, uh, Jeff Sawtell. Jeff that- Sawtell, who lives in in London, and Jeff uh, is a, a writer and a painter, and you know much of what he had to much of what he had to say um, during those times. It it really touched me a lot because. Um, it was outside of the outside of the box of what we really deal with here or how we think here and and um and uh, he's always been someone who's who's been a big on revol- revolution uh, but on a political sense as well as an artistic sense and you know our revolution here is is or had been based around the civil rights movement and the changes that, that had happened um, in the, the, uh, in the sixties. And then of course, into the seventies with, with the black Panthers and then, um, you know, it kind of got lost. <laughs> so, so um, it was, I think important for me to bring that kind of idea back into what was happening with music because in the 70s motown with 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 uh um war and and what's going on and some of the other uh records that that were uh coming out of motown really um uh had his finger on the pulse of what was was going on at the time and how people were feeling within the black community with the uh, black forum records um uh, they had recordings from from uh, uh, Vietnam uh, soldiers in Vietnam talking about their experiences and and the poli- uh, the political uh, aspect of things. So, um, for me to um, use a statement like that from from Jeff on an artistic level, I felt it was touching on to that legacy that. Um, uh, legacy of of revolution, but into art uh, that that was was so um, prevalent, at least uh, the early part of my life. Uh, when I go back to to listening to these things and and exploring uh, uh, yeah. what was done, it also reminds me. I mean, you're you're quite political. I mean, I think that that's. Um evident even in your Instagram that I've just recently started to follow. Um, it's, it's very conceptual and at times incredibly political. And um, I also think it's, it's really inventive. And I, I, without giving too much away, 
tell us a little bit more about how you approach your Instagram feed and how you, what you decide to post, how you post. If there's anything you can share with us, I'd love to know. Uh, Instagram um, and and Twitter, uh, I I use extensively. I try to. Um, post things that that have meaning um and that has has some sort of meaning to my life so like twitter i use it in a way that um is like if you're reading a magazine but instagram i use it closer to if you're watching television and uh when i started really taking over my my instagram and and um uh and customizing it um i i call myself an internet sampler so i take things from around the internet and and i post it so whether it's um uh uh when it, when i really started getting into it it would be say somebody tried to stage stage dive and they screwed up <laughs> you know, or it might be Buckethead playing, uh, playing riffs, or it could be what, whatever, um, seemed quite interesting to me, but that was within a theme of doing it. And then I realized as I was doing it, that I might be a little OCD. So, uh, when I, when I look at the page, I don't look at, when I look at my Instagram, I don't look at just one post. I look at the the whole summary mm -hmm. and it's in three and I post things in three so that it makes sense to me. So I might post the same image three times because if I post it once, then it doesn't, the next thing doesn't make any sense to me. So I have to post it in three. So in order to make it more interesting to me, I might post it where it changes color. So it'll be the same image, but it'll be in lime green or it'll be in orange or it'll be in red or, or whatever. And if you go down the timeline, way down the timeline, you'll notice that I was doing things in 12. So I think that's what it was like, uh, three o'clock cross four down. That's how it, it, uh, uh, that's how it framed on my telephone. So I might do 12 black pieces or 12 pieces of, of my, of a speaker, but the speaker moves slightly and it's, it's, it's playing on again, my, my trying to frame everything in a, in a way that makes sense to me. And that just doesn't screw up what screw of my head, but also that it, you really have to watch it to know that there's something else that's, that's happening. Um, and one of the themes recently that, that I really love to do was this black punk thing. And um, black punk is something that I, I think has, has gotten lost in the shuffle because um, with, with punk, people my age group, think of Sid Vicious, you know, Sid and Nancy, they, they think of this, this, uh, um, this spotty faced, you know, sneering, 
um, heroin user and, you know, heroin users, you know, in leather that might even be wearing a, 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 a swastika badge on the jacket that you don't even really see. Uh, or they might be, you know, have some type of other Nazi paraphernalia that was very common in, in, uh, in that time uh, for, for punk to be. But um, the black punk aspect got lost. And what is black punk to me is actually most of black culture because black culture uh, in the U S has, has always been against the system and um, black punk may be a death, the band called death. That's, that's from Detroit and the Ramones actually say that that's where punk comes from <laughs> is from, mm -hmm. from death. They were doing what, what the Ramones were doing before the Ramones were doing it. Um, of course, uh, we have Iggy and the Stooges and MC5 and, and all that stuff that, that comes from Detroit and Ann Arbor as well. But then going into not only the band thing, but mm -hmm. the imagery of, of rap and hip hop has, has been, um, mm -hmm. you know, these guys are rebels. They've always been mm -hmm. rebellious to the system, even though rap turned into buying into the system and becoming billionaires. But, it still feels that it's against the system because by being black is, mm. is against how the system is, has been created uh, uh, here in, in the United States. You know, it's like you could play poker, but there's mm. always, you know, there's always the house. The house is always going to win at some point. So it doesn't matter what the, whether you're a billionaire uh, and, and black, the house is always going to win in some some case, so that even, that makes it even more punk to me. So, so I I use these images. I use images of people that come from the punk world, like Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Um, you know, images that people might not even think of in in the sense of punk, uh, like Lee Scratch Perry. Um, you know, uh, also. I used the forest uh, image of the forest on there where he has his uh, make techno black again hat on and a mask, you know? So uh, in the series of, of three, I had DJ Stingray uh, who, whose image is a mask. I had Mad Mike Banks from underground resistance, whose image has always been wearing a bandana and then the forest with his mask and his make, uh, make techno black again, which is a seriously punk attitude, uh, in, in that sense, because, you know, techno had, had developed into this, uh, imagery that people had that it was just, you know, Germans or, um, uh, this minimal concept of, of, of pale people wearing all black, and that was what techno is. And, and uh, that, that hat, that statement uh, from his movement is, is amazing. And we got, you know, actually looking back at it, that might have even got the most responses was his, his the post of... of uh, oh, you're kidding. Yeah. Because oh, wow. it, it, it pushed a lot of buttons, and I hope it keeps pushing buttons. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think we're nearing the end of time. I'm not quite sure if how many more questions I can ask. I have so many. Uh, Keep on. I know. I was one. I don't. I do want to end by asking what you're going to be reading next. But um, I also wanted to ask what you're looking forward to in a year of real introspection and um, somber somberness. I should say. What What are you looking forward to? Oh, um, I'm looking forward to uh, maximizing on my creative my creativity. Mm. Um, uh, that's another great thing about something like a tool like uh, Instagram is that I try to use it as a creative tool. I'm not trying to sell you anything on it. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to hype myself. You don't see me with tons of cash or Lamborghinis or <laughs> anything like that, you know, so as I'm not using it as a, as a, uh, a, a form of, of selling anything. And, and that's the situation with creativity to me too, especially as being a DJ is that when you get on stage, people expect you to sell yourself. They expect you to try to make, these big grandstanding motions that, you know, you have to put your hands in the air, you have to smile to people, mm. you have to do all these things, you know, on a performance side, I, I like uh, what Miles Davis was doing where he turned his back to the audience and play to his band. You know, I liked how Sun Ra, um, you know, he might come out in, in big capes and, and crazy outfits and stuff, but, you know, he'd do things like space chords, which, when he started a space court, the room might be full. And by the time he ended a space court, the room may be empty, <laughs> you know? So these things I feel are, are what these, these men did as performers, but that they were able to retain their creativity while they were doing it. Um, so because I'm not, playing gigs in the, in the capacity that I, that I was, then now it's like finding that creativity in the studio and um, that creativity for me is also what I hear in the texture of sounds or what I hear in, in how the, the sound uh, responds to the room or, or, you know, it could be just what I'm thinking at the time, but you know, from when I started making music um, and what was interesting with sampling is that when you sample a piece of a song is if you keep it playing, you know, constantly, that sound actually starts to open up and you hear other things that are in the sound. So it's not technically there, is that your brain is making up things. And your brain's constantly adding stuff to it. And it's like, oh, yeah, maybe I can add that to it. Maybe I could do this. So if, if, uh, if I have something looping for, for uh, three hours, that's just a two-bar loop, it'll drive most people crazy. But in my, in my world, it actually opens up potential for me to, to uh, delve in deeper and pull out um, ideas that weren't there, that my brain's my brain's adding to it and I try to find musically ways of, of, uh, of making those um, ideas and, and those phantom uh, sounds into some sort of reality that, that, uh, that, that makes 
you know, um, makes my final product. Now, my studio is, I've had it, um, I built it from ground up um, maybe four years ago or something while I was living in Barcelona. And unfortunately, I'm still trying to find those points in the studio where I can have that loop Mm -hmm. going and I'm hearing it in another way. But, you know, because the studio is, is, is so good that maybe it's not conducive for that. Maybe I need to just put the gear in my bedroom, close the door (laughs) and then, and then just start jamming and then see, see what comes from it. But so I'm still looking for that sweet spot for myself to, to uh, creatively um, take, what I do to the next level. It sounds like you're enjoying it. Having this time. It sounds like you're enjoying it. Um, I guess I would just like to end by asking who are you listening to right now? Who should we be listening to right now? And um, what is that book you're going to read next? (laughs) Um. who should we be listening to right now? Uh, I really have to say Moody man is still one of, one of my favorite. Um, I, I signed his album back in 1995 and he's still making amazing, amazing music and pushing, uh, pushing the boundaries. Um, Omar S is doing great music. Uh, Kenny Larkin has some new stuff that's coming up. Kevin Saunderson is doing, uh, his inner city project, which he he has a, um, a intro from Idris Alba, which is uh, which was really important to me because I love this guy since he was in the Wire as Stringer Bell. I mean, uh, amazing, amazing. Um, as far as reading, I'm I'm going back a bit. So you know, Hunter S. Thompson is one of my favorite writers. Uh, because he's just so out of his mind and and uh and and that really uh needs to be uh revisited for me and and um you know to to pique my imagination uh a bit more um and then also um i i just bought and it's very important for techno is alvin toffler Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the third wave and future shock are, are, uh, are two um, pieces they did. And I think it was future shock that, that was the inspiration for Juan Atkins and, and, uh, and Rick Davis when they did Cybertron, which was uh, the first techno group in existence. And, um, uh, so that was supposed to be part of my reading over the last week when I was in uh, away <laughs> at the Dia house. And unfortunately um, I, I didn't even get a chapter in. I don't even think I got a page in. Yeah. There's just too much stuff to do there that, uh, that when mm-hmm. I go back, I have to just go on the, on the, on the coastline and listen to the waves and hopefully read through, through mm-hmm. a bit. Well, thank you, Carl. It's always so nice talking to you and taking this time to do that. That was the cost catch up with me, Kelly Kivlin, and Carl Craig. 
Hit subscribe in your podcast app if you'd like to hear more and head to coughstores.com to join the conversation online. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.